Born in trouble. In and out the frame, out your flame, or make it brighter, douse the same. Welcome to the 22nd episode of Born in Trouble, Season 2. I'm your host, John X. Welcome. This is a little bit different today than the normal th- Thursday fair that we have. I'm joined here today with the illustrious Miss Sonia Lewis. How are you today, Miss Sonia Lewis? Let me give you a round of applause. Are you there? Why, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that um, introduction and welcoming to your show and this platform. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. Um, Miss Sonia Lewis is an anti-racism impact strategist, a master curator of self-brave space for equity and humanity. I'm reading that directly off of your profile. Absolutely. And also, would you like to tell people, I know you're coming to us from the West Coast here, West Side. Yes, yes, you know it. There you go. How yes. It? So I am Sonia Lewis, and I am the owner and um, CEO of Ascribe Educational Consulting. Um, and we've been in business for over a decade now. I am a former high school history teacher. And so I come with years of experience of looking at and seeing the cracks and gaps, sometimes gaping gaps um, in our system of education. And our job, what I've tried to curate over the past decade, is making space for courageous conversations around race and equity and humanity and how we foster a sense of belonging. So that's a little bit about what we do. Well, that's a lot of information that's actually needed right now. And um, one thing about the show Born in Trouble is that we're trying to educate people as to not just what the problems are, um, not even necessarily, um, it's not a gripe session. What we're trying to do is we're trying to build bridges towards solutions. And I think that you're someone who may have a lot of solutions to some of the problems, or at least some solutions. No one has all the solutions. Um, We're living in a world that's, you know, consistently changing on a daily basis. And, you know, the movement of Black Lives Matter and a lot of the other movements that have come forth within the past couple of years have kind of been a... Um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Antagonist towards that, a um, driving force behind that. Absolutely. And you've been doing this for a lot of years. So you have something on your on your profile about being the mother of, what is it? You said six, four, three. What? And three, I think. Yes. 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 <laughs> and it says, ask me about that. So I was like, Absolutely. that is too juicy of a nugget for me to pass up. So what is that exactly? Six plus four plus three plus three. Yeah. So I fortunately, it's it's been a blessing. I told my mother as a kid, I was like, I'm going to have 10 kids so that you can babysit them all at one time. Uh-oh. It didn't quite, <laughs> it didn't quite work out like that. I I did bring into this world six beautiful black boys. All right. And I married my husband, who um, is a, a, about a decade older than I and who was married before and has children. So there's the plus four. Their mother, unfortunately, passed le- a little less than 10 years ago, and she had three additional children, um, not of my husband's. But we, you know, kind of just brought them into the fold and were like, you will never, you know, be without parental guidance. And we have three grandbabies out of this equation. So that's my six plus four plus three plus three. That is what's up. It is. It's a beautiful thing. You're getting a, a, a loud 
round of applause. I know my guests can never <laughs> hear that, but you're getting a loud round of applause from me for that. Because what I always say to people and my, my thought process has always been like, I'm a grandfather. You know, I've got children. I never say my children are what they are, who they came from or whatever. Those are my kids. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people have expressed this before. And I'm like, listen, you know, a lot of people, they don't want to take care of. They say, I don't want to take care of a kid that's not mine. I don't want to take care of the child. But that child has nothing to do with that whatsoever, with your Absolutely. with your adult decisions. And my feeling and my thought process has always been to treat those that come into your family, like your family, because you wouldn't want somebody, you wouldn't want someone else mistreating your children. Absolutely. So for that, you know, oh my God, I love you already. Yeah. We haven't even talked about, that's just like what you did at home. So, you know, that's not even talking about on a more broad scale with what, with your work with education and equity. You know? Absolutely. Tell it's me. so funny. It's so funny because the the bonus bonuses. So I, I you know, I call my four um, bonuses that I married. Right. Because when I married their father, I married them, too. Um, those are my bonuses, my bonus bonuses who are their siblings. Um, it's so funny to see when they come around and everything. They're just like, oh, my God, I just love you so much. Thank you for, you know, just being in our lives. And thank you. You know, it's it's the gratitude piece. Right. Mm-hmm. Because they know that they don't have parents to lean on. Um, but and then to see my kids that I have birth and been with them every step of the way is like she I but she ain't all that. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing. It's so funny all the time, but they are a joy. They vibe off of each other and they love and appreciate the fact that we have um, brought so many um, just different energies into our space. So it's it's a beautiful thing. And that's a part of the extended family that is and part of the community that is the right. black family and the black culture that we sometimes forget. Or, Absolutely. Or actually, it's not it's not publicized as much as it should be. Right. And the problem with that is that, like, you know, when other people tell you stories, they're going to tell the story that's most interesting to them, the one that makes them feel the best. Yep. You know, so a lot of times it's very important for us to remember. I always say, make sure you tell your own story because you don't want someone else telling it for you. They may not that's tell right. it properly. They may not tell it properly. So, yep. um, you know, definitely round of, round of applause for that. It's like you start, you start, you've been, you must be tired. You know, that's that's they what, keep me young. They keep me filled <laughs> with energy. Our youngest running around here is eight years old. We just had a brand new, you know, grandbaby. She's only three months. So, no, it, it would be a while before I'm tired, tired. Now, okay. you know, sometimes it catches up with me and I'll I'll be like, I have to sleep in for an entire day. Don't bother me. But, you know, it'll be a while before I'm tired, tired. Before you're not there. Like I told yeah. you this morning, my granddaughter has been giving me fits this morning. I got her a watch phone. She's called me at least three times today. You know, certain days. And she'll call me if no one else is picking up the phone. She'll, she calls yeah. me and she says, Grandpa, why isn't this one picking up the phone? Why is it that? So then I got to call behind them because I'm not going to get any peace unless I get her. Unless right. I get them to talk to her. So, you know, family is the reason why we do this and the reason why we're here. Absolutely. You know? So what are we talking about today, Miss Green? We're talking what? about the preschool to prison pipeline. Or as it's been explained to me, it's been changed. The name is now the cradle to prison pipeline. Have you heard of that? Ha- that I have terminology? heard of that, yes. 
that terminology. It's been changed because of uh, it's not just even what my understanding with the prison. Of pre- well, I'm going to let you take it. What is, what exactly is the the First, you know, the prison to the preschool to prison pipeline. Could you give us a brief explanation of like what that is? Because that's the term that most people are familiar with. And then we'll get into the cradle to prison pipeline. Well, let me give a little bit of historical background. So when we when when black folks were seeking educational equity and equality back during the 60s, during the civil rights movement and segregation. And 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 our government said, hmm, we don't want to give them the same resources that we are giving, you know, white schools. What they decided to do in turn was to introduce this first at the first opportunity was law enforcement into the school system because they needed to protect um, white bodies from black bodies. And so this is the first time in American history where you see law enforcement making a connection and bridge and a um, building relationships in our education systems. So now let's flip ahead into the 70s and you start to have, because I just was listening to a a piece on um, Urban View yesterday or a day before with respects to the, um, the war on drugs being 50 years old. Now I'm 50. And so that means that this really, this asserted intentional effort to address black communities, brown communities, impoverished communities with over-policing started in the 1970s, right? And so likewise, when you, right, like, Mm-hmm. Likewise, you will see that there has been this trend when you are talking about school systems that are now integrated by the 70s, um, where um, there is an increased presence of law enforcement. And so younger and younger, we're hearing stories of kindergartners and first graders and preschoolers really and truly have the police called on them, hence the school to prison pipeline, the preschool to prison pipeline, and now the cradle to prison pipeline. And so this trend is a a direct reflection on how we are attempting or how this government is attempting to control black and brown bodies, poor bodies, impoverished, and and, and make these things a crime. And uh, it's just indicative of the country that we know America is. It, it, it has foundational roots in racism. And we have to understand that uh, human capitalism didn't end when slavery was emancipated back in 1863. Mm. Two things um, parallel with the time of the war on drugs. We we're looking at from the Civil Rights Act of 1964. You know, we're talking about six years from that point, period of time. So it's not even enough time for a generation to mature. That they started this, that they started this program. The second thing was that the targeting of the, of kids for behaviors that are generally ascribed to children, you know, you're criminal, criminalizing nature by design in order to take these kids and push them down this certain path. And this is something that our kids experience on a daily basis. You know, the question would be, how do we combat that? As parents. Absolutely. So I, I, I'm, like I said, I'm a parent of many. And so one of my ways of combating, combating that and advocating for my children and equipping other parents with the courage to also stand up and be advocates for their children is to, to be present. 
right? When you go into these school systems, set boundaries and expectations. So every school year, I can't, my oldest um, born child is 27 years old. I cannot remember a time where I sent him into a school system that I trusted them enough to treat them with the dignity and respect that he deserved. And so I would always start off each school year with, back in the day, was a handwritten letter. Today, it's an email saying that, hey, These are some things that my kids will not participate in. And my expectation is that you call me if there is something that you have a question or concern about. But here are some things that we will not do. For example, like but not limited to, right? Because there can be a whole plethora of things that we can say, "Mm, that's questionable. And why are we doing that to Black children? But here are a couple of examples. Um, I can remember a time my my now sixth grader was in the third grade and he had a teacher that described he called me and described him as aggressive. I said I, I came up to the school and I provided her with a stack of 10 books. And I said, you read these books and then tell me that my child is any different from little Bobby over there um, who just happens to be white. Mm. Um, and so when we when we give these labels to black children, it follows them because said teacher will then go into the break room and have a conversation or be overheard by another teacher who is then um, put on warning and their brain begins to, you know, be conditioned to believe that when they hear my son's name, if they were to get that child as a teacher in, I mean, as a student in the future, then they already have this preconceived notion that this child is going to act a certain kind of way and aggressive is a negative connotation. So just setting standards and expectations of what we will and won't do. Like you can't go a, a week, two weeks, a month, and have a problem with one of my children and have not called me. Because if you call me and say, oh, one of your children hasn't been performing for a month, my next call is to the principal and then to the superintendent. Because there should have been some things that have alerted you prior to a month that says that there's a problem. And maybe I can use the resource of their parents. And so I think that oftentimes there's this assumption that Black parents don't show up for their children. Mm. And so they just automatically assume I'm just going to, you know, wait, sit on this problem for as long as possible. And and that's a disservice to black children. As a matter of fact, I don't know too many black parents who do not want their children to do well in school. And so first, that's a misnomer that we have to get out of the way. And so, like, we don't say the Pledge of Allegiance in in my household. So in that email I'm typing, I'm like, do not make my children feel a certain kind of way if they don't stand up for the Pledge of Allegiance. Mm -hmm. And so I'm setting this standard. Right. And so now I would say all of my boys have gone through the same elementary school. So when they see the last name Lewis and they see the parent Kenneth and Sonia, it's mm-hmm. like, oh, we already know mm-hmm. she's going to give us a problem mm-hmm. if we don't hold her children in high regard. Bring- so when when other parents and other students see that, they then are like, huh. Okay, I didn't know that. And I can do that. Yes, you can request certain teachers. You can hold this educational system accountable to our children. You're bringing memories of my own childhood and my mother coming through. I'm the youngest of three. And the majority of my family was, um, at the time, the school system where I went to from at least um, K through six was predominantly white. Yeah. And there were there were issues you know, especially my brother, you know, my my oldest brother, he took the brunt of it when they moved from Brooklyn. And over time, they got to know my mother. And there was it was not unusual for us to, like, be changing teachers or changing classes. But we had the ability. But she actually had the ability to go out and 
see the teachers and go to the school. One of the things with economic insufficiency that a lot of people are going through right now, um, it doesn't allow them, like you said, they, the misconception is that black parents don't want to be involved. That's not the case in most right. cases. My, my general understanding is that people are generally the same all the way across the board. Okay. Absolutely. Racial thing is just like something that's made up. It's like black on black crime. It's a made up right. statistic. You know, people, right. people kill people who are closest to them. Absolutely. So it's like, I don't even, I don't even bother with that conversation. That's just like, if someone's bringing that up to me, it's just like, you're an idiot. I don't have time for that. But, um, the whole point of it was that people do the same things across the board. They want to spend time with their kids. They want to, but with the way that the economy is, it's a little bit different now with COVID. COVID, yes. COVID has caused a lot of problems for the system itself because people are sitting at home and they're realizing, hey, you know what? I don't have to go out and spend all this time. I'm, I'm actually enjoying more time with my family. Yes. You know, kids are getting better education. They're getting better. They're getting better consideration. And now we're looking at kids who are 16, 17, 18 years old, maybe at the end of that. I always look at things in terms of year. COVID has been about two years. You'd say yep. it's been about two years now. Yep. So that's adversely affecting those kids. And they're going to have a different perspective. But the younger ones, they're probably going to be, you know, it's a little it's a little bit different. So it's just like a wait and see type of deal. But we've been targeted by these policies for decades now. Yes. And if we don't figure out ways to break free of these policies, we could say all day long that it's somebody else's fault. And it is because it's their systems. These people, they still benefit from these systems being in place. They're not going to get rid of the systems. So how do we, so beating the system is to me means more than being able to buy a Benz. Right. Figuring out a way to buy a Benz. Beating the system is actually, it's more, it's more grounded in what you said about the six, six, four, three, you know, how many kids that you watch you 54, that you actually have that are part of your heart and your love and everything. It's a little bit deeper than that because there's value in their children. And it's sort of like part of this, part of this whole thing is about these messages that we've been taught and what to value and what not to value, what actually holds value and what doesn't hold value. And, you know, one of the questions is why should we even care about the preschool to prison pipeline? You know, if this is why we should care about the preschool to prison, the preschool to prison, the cradle to prison pipeline is because our future, our, our the legacy we leave behind, our children are going to remember. They are going to remember how much of advocates, how much we stood for um, and either watch the system devour our children or remove our children from these systems. And so I say that the that COVID was a pandemic that collided with another pandemic called racism. And so what happened when that collision took place is that it exposed, it was like the ripping off of a, a disgusting, tattered, um, ripped and um, soiled bandaid that was on a wound that really and truly needed surgery. And so this is what we discovered is that 
black and brown children, poor children all over this country had lacks of lacks, multiple lacks of access to resources. And so it forced school systems to do things in a different way if you wanted to have access to those um, children, because having access to those children put dollars into their system. ADA money is how schools stay in business. And so here are a couple of things that I have as a former teacher and, and now as an educational consultant have been able to um, fight and, and ban with other parents here in California to like fight what this system of um, inequity when it comes to education. One of them is the removal of our children from their systems, because I believe that we are enough to take care of us. And so as our, in our adults, so you're, a home, are, you're a homeschooling advocate. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. My children, ha- I've only had one of my children who have been homeschooled prior to COVID. But what I did when COVID was hit, when it first hit, my kids and the structure that they were receiving from school was so unstructured that I said, we're not going to sit up here and, and just not learn anything. So I started a virtual online school where kids from all over the country were able to log on and see beautiful faces just like themselves. We had mental health and, and social emotional health check-ins. We I taught them everything Black that they would never be taught in a school system. Like the, the book and the curriculum would Damn. never, ever... Damn, right? wait, slow down. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. <laughs> you are on fire. I am sorry, yeah. Tim. I am scared of you. Or yeah. they should, they, listen, I am so impressed. I, I purposely don't do as much research as other people would do for their podcast on their guest. I just read the, the surface stuff because I like to be surprised and I like my yeah. responses to be genuine and everything. Yeah. And I'm like, and I'm like right now, I just have to, damn, yeah, you are on fire. You have covered like a, and also to give to give the audience a little bit of a background with some of the things I did during COVID. I spent a lot of time in public policy readings, meetings online, yeah. live. So, and I know you were there, you know exactly what mm-hmm. I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So it's like, when you say these things to me, you listen, y'all have no idea how much fire this woman has just brought to this conversation. Yeah. You have, a, you have, you actually did that. You did the mental health piece as well. Absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. And this is what I discovered. It was so interesting because I've all, my background is high school history, social studies, right? What I discovered is that five-year-olds were making comments and asking questions as if they were in a middle and high school setting. So this is what we know for sure. So like I have a bachelor's degree in history and in psychology. I know the basics of psychology that children between the ages of three and five, they know the difference from right and wrong and they know they know difference. Mm -hmm. And so to put that pressure on them, they can identify that I'm being treated differently than someone who doesn't look like me. Right. So that's one realization that we had those kind of conversations. The second thing is they are very analytical. Like I, I there were times where I, w- I had to put myself on pause, to put my screen on, you know, screensaver so they can see me break down because they were saying things that tells me that they have been exposed to adult issues. Right. Yes. And we say, 
you know, we say in education that we want to protect our children from X, Y, and Z, but black and brown kids have never been protected from racism. And so if our our babies are not protected from racism, then white babies should not be protected from knowing about the history that has perpetuated racism. And so that's why I thought it was extremely important for the sake of my own babies. I don't care if it was just mine getting on that Zoom class every day. And, and, And thank God I have a platform where people where people had a word of mouth and, you know, I had kids logging on from New York, from Chicago, North Carolina, Atlanta, all over the country. Right. And Mm. they were thriving off one another. Representation is important. So not only were these, these black brown children and they were seeing a black teacher get on, I was inviting in my black and brown friends that were experts in everything under the sun so Mm. that our babies can get an opportunity to see that there's a possibility that they can be anything under the sun. So I don't believe in just telling kids, you can do anything you want to do. I want to show you that you can do anything you want to do. And not only can you do it, here's an example of somebody who looks like you has walked the walk, has been in your same shoes. And so that's super important. The other piece of my starting that um, virtual space was I wanted to fight the school to prison pipeline, because this is what we also know is that when you teach children about themselves, they create that creates a sense of pride in themselves and they just automatically perform better because they have pride. Black is beautiful. Black is beautiful. Yeah, it's magical. It's so magical. I look at myself in the the mirror and like, you know, I growing up in this area, my mother made sure that we understood, you know, exactly where we stood at all periods of time, at all periods of time. And she let me know, like, listen, you know, not everybody's going to like you because you because you are smart. Right. You know that we are the ones. And you look at you look at it historically. You know, if I want to break this down to other people, you look at it historically with all the lynchings that they did in the South. They weren't just lynching. They weren't lynching just slave hands for like whistling at white women. They were going after the doctors. They were going after the lawyers. They were going after the businessmen who were competing with them. There are countless stories in the United States of America of at the turn of the century where black men dared to create businesses that were so good and were quality that all people would want to come there and actually do business with them. And for their reward, they ended up at the end of a tree, at the noose on the end of a tree. And it's important that we understand these messages. And especially when you're dealing with allies, you're dealing with people who are against what we're trying to do as far as get people to take responsibility for their own for their own selves and for their own futures and take it out of the hands of your people that don't. You're, I call them your oppressors. These yeah. are your oppressors. They don't yeah. have the love for you. They don't want to see you. Ben Franklin was the one who made the statement back at the in the Constitution that who do I want to see? I want to see the sons of Europe prosper, or do I want to see the sons of Africa prosper? Right. And these are the systems, and this has been boiled into the system the entire time. So you get a lot of people who claim to be allies or want to be allies who say, well, listen, I'm not racist at this point in time. I don't own any slaves and all these other things. But at the same time, you're against any changes to this system. Absolutely. So if you're, Absolutely. so if you're against any changes to the system and you're still benefiting from the system, I don't see how you can possibly fix your mouth to say that. Yeah. 
I posted something on my social media last year after I received a grant from a, a white Jewish woman who is very philanthropic only because she married into money, right? And so she had given me a grant for my, my teaching program um, to buy books because part of my program was about literacy. I wanted my babies to see themselves in books. And so um, she gave me this grant and I posted something on my um, Facebook page that said, um, if you are white in America, you don't have to be racist to benefit from racism. Mm -hmm. And she went, she got into her white tears and fragility and she was like, but Sonia. And I was like, there's no, but like there's a benefit to the fact that your ancestors profited off of and were able to build generational wealth. Whereas my ancestors continue to this day to be denied the access to resources to even GI bill. The GI yes. Bill, the Homestead Act, yes. there, you know, all of these different things, farm subsidies, all yes. of these different protections. When you go to the, you know, the, these protections were not written for us. You know, no. I've got, a, I've got, a, I've got a, um, acquaintance who's a libertarian who's always coming up with these different ideas, and they're saying that, like, you know, they're they're different than everyone else, and you know, you are only to the certain extent until their their privileges like question, you push them to that edge. And then it's like, oh, no, we can't go. We can't go that far and everything. Yeah. I always say about reparations, and I've been saying for 20 years, I've been saying since I was in college, you know, very simple. The simple answer to any economic woes of inequality in this country is education. Absolutely. Starting at Absolutely. the bottom. And this is, we're going back to 1987. So... What we've seen in the interim over the past 30 years is the reverse of that. We've seen them taking out schools and turn them into war zones. And you are your environment. You know, like you said, you have the background in psychology. You know how that affects these kids at six, seven, eight years old to walk into the to walk into their hallways and be aggressed by police by grown ass police officers. Right. Right. The statistics. The statistic shows that people who have been in war, 25% of them come back suffering very heavily from PTSD. The statistic also shows that children who grow up in inner cities that are impoverished are 47% likely to have PTSD symptoms. So you tell me which war zone is is worse. And on top of that, you are bringing war and weaponry and and policing tactics that are very warlike into our inner cities to fight us from having access to resources. Well, let let me ask you this question. In inner cities, like a lot of people rent, most of the majority of students are renters. Um, People who live there are renters. They don't own. So technically they don't pay taxes there. So do you feel like they have a right to even make those demands on the school system? I do. I I really and truly do. If we're talking about a school system that's going to be equitable, and I use the example of my school um, district that my children attend, there is one area of our entire school district that is not the best, right? But that school continues, the school in that area continues to fail. Now, this entire system is a very rich tax base. And so it would behoove this school system, in my opinion, to spread out the resources to where the need is or where there is a greater need. They don't because they know that if they don't satisfy the needs of those people who are paying them into that tax system um, the most, 
they will be the ones and who will be the loudest at those school boards. Uh, and that's where I got you. Cause that's what I wanted you to say. That's exactly yeah. what I wanted you to say. I wanted you to say the tax revenues that pay into the jack tax revenues the most, because what I'm going to reference back now is the Ferguson DOJ report. Yep. Okay. Ferguson DOJ report showed that the city of Ferguson, their main purpose was to generate revenue from the black residents that were there. Right. The number of stops that were um, disproportionate between blacks and whites. That's one thing. The number of tickets that were given out is the actual truth bomb right. because those tickets that they used by aggressing those people pay for the police force Absolutely. pays for the buildings of the new courts pays for all of those salaries of all of those people that take that money and they bring it into their neighborhoods. So what you're essentially doing with that system, it's a lot more nefarious than what people like to make it out to be because what Absolutely. you're doing is you're robbing these people of what little they have and you're bringing it into your neighborhood in order to pay for your kid's education. And then you will sit there and you will say with a straight face that these people don't pay any taxes. They don't right. pay into it, but we pay differently. And Absolutely. We, pay, we pay through harassment. We pay with our Liberty. We pay with our respect and our dignity and these things. And this is, so if anyone ever asks anyone out there, if you have a right to demand that, the answer is yes. Absolutely. Look at the Absolutely. number of police in your neighborhood. Look at the tickets that you get for jaywalking. Look at um, Mr. Um, Eric Garner, who died, right. you know, for selling cigarettes, loose cigarettes, who normally would have gotten a scoff floor, who would have written a ticket that would have paid for those police officers. Their right. salaries are based upon your misery. Absolutely. And that has Absolutely. to change. That has to change. Not a not only does it have to change, we have to begin to reimagine how we look at policing and education. And, and like I alluded to in the beginning, um, that COVID exposed what racism is, right? So when we're talking about law enforcement that doesn't want to deal with mental health, um, domestic violence, they, they I, you know, I can, I can definitely point to my local sheriff who, by the way, I have successfully sued and, and been paid out because I, he violated my um, civil rights. Mm. And so when I show up at city council meetings and I, I come with data and details uh, and statistics that they cannot deny, then we have to begin to redress and you have to begin to answer the questions of the community of why we can't defund the police. Because you can't tell me if they don't want to go out for domestic violence calls, if they don't want to go out for mental health crises and intervention because they're not experts in that realm, then what, are, what is the message that then is being sent to children who are watching these interactions and are very afraid of law enforcement from very young age? I've never taught my children to hate the police or say negative things about the police, but mm -hmm. I can remember my now eight-year-old when he was a kindergarten get, kindergartner, his school had a program that in kindergarten, they brought in fire department, they brought in the um, um, ambulance, they brought in the police department to give them an example of what community emergency systems are, right? Mm -hmm. 
And every year, part of that email that I would send every year to my um, kids' teachers is, when the police show up at your school, I don't want my kids in the room, period. Because they don't need to be traumatized by a person in a uniform who they associate with violence and trauma that they've seen on TV, they've seen on their tablets because it's so readily accessible to them. And when I say even a five-year-old gets it, five-year-olds are given technology and therefore if they have access Access to it, they can look at. I, I've seen two and three year olds that can, you know, navigate a TikTok, uh, my, my <laughs> YouTube. About it. Yeah. <laughs> right? He fixed right? My, he, I, I couldn't fix my. I couldn't figure out how to get something done on my remote. And my grandson was like six months old. He's upstairs in the room. I'm like, how do I do this? He picked up the remote, pressed and the, button, the button, and then looked and at me like, looked at me like, that's how you do it, Grandpa. Right. Right. Like, All right. So this is the thing is that we are conditioning our children to accept that this is okay. And and while these things seem very innocent, like bringing the cops to the school to introduce them to kindergarten, that seems so innocent. Like this is a part of our community. If something bad happens, call 911. No. Well, when reality is the police show up after a crime has taken place. And so really and truly where are our dollars being spent? So if you are not out there actively fighting crime and preventing crime, from happening why am i paying you so much you are the largest chunk of cities and municipalities all over this country you are the largest part of their budget and you show up after the fact and then when you show up you provide me with a number right Mm -hmm. that says that this is a file number where we filed you know this this report for you Mm ma'am but if you are a black person like yourself and myself it's that there's not going to be a concerted effort to go in and, and figure out what happened and there be follow up. But if you're in, in the white neighborhood where the tax base is a little bit higher, mm-hmm. they're going to be actively looking for and trying to solve those issues. And so what I'm saying is you can't just bring the police, especially into urban um, cities and schools and say, hey, kids, come see this cool cop car. And then now you want to see what it feels like to, to sit in the back of the cop car. Heck mm-hmm. no. Pump Heck your no. brakes. My kids will mm-hmm. never be sitting in, even if this is an activity of introducing them to the systems that are in our, our, our communities, because these systems are designed by intent to criminalize our children. And that was a choice. And that was a choice. I'm going to read to you something. Have you heard of the Perry Preschool Program? Yes. You're familiar with that? Yes. They've done the results. It's been 50 years now. So they've done the results of that and everything has come back in. They found that the um, return on that, I believe it was like $1 for every dollar invested. It was worth, I believe it was 14 for that. They, that actually gave back to the community. This is a positive thing. This is something that um, kids were, were taught and they were exposed to. They found that people who were, who were actually were in this program, their um, per capita annual income is more their likelihood, everything. It's all the, it's all positive. It's all positive. So why would you invest more money into a police program as opposed to something like a preschool program? You you have to give me a a serious answer. Not you, you know, because you're not the one who's doing it. You're on my side, but you have to give me a serious answer. Like with a straight face and explain to me why that police officer is needed more than that preschool. When that preschool has shown to have more value, more um, financial value, more intrinsic value, just every all the way around the all the way around the board and everything. Absolutely. So absolutely. 
What, what we do know is that if we resource schools starting at preschool, right, um, with more resources, especially in impoverished areas, disenfranchised areas, vulnerable areas, when we re- when we invest in those scenarios, we know that poverty is less likely to happen. When we provide children with an opportunity to really learn and see themselves in the process, there is less crime that happens, right, because humanity is being fostered, belonging is being fostered. So when we really talk about equity, this isn't a matter of equality anymore. This isn't something, this isn't our 1960s conversation about civil rights. Mm -hmm. This isn't about making the laws equal for every man and woman and child that that is in this country. This is about looking at where the resources are lacking and then putting those finances, put your dollars where the problems are so that we can come up with solutions. So we level out the playing field and people, when they begin to compete with one another at different levels can actually compete. So when when kids from an inner city get ready to go to college compared to those who come from a a private school background, they can actually compete with one another. I'll tell you this very- um, But they don't want that. They don't want that They don't want that, absolutely. They They absolutely don't. I will tell you that I had a very eye-opening moment when I was 18. I, high school senior, my um, my um, advisor at the time, and I was in this magnet program, all white kids. There were only two um, graduating black um, seniors in that program. I happened to have been the salutatorian of my graduating class. I had a 3.98 GPA, did very well, right? Got into Stanford, Berkeley, all of the big name schools that you can think of. And I didn't even apply to these schools because um, affirmative action was actually a thing back then when mm-hmm. I was in school. And so I, my number one um, college of choice was Spelman College. Mm-hmm. And I, I chose that because my mother infused in my mind, she conditioned me from a young age, this is where you need to go. And she gave me very good reasons why. Mm-hmm. My great, great grandfather, the church that he was the pastor of is where Spelman was founded. Mm-hmm. And so there's a family legacy that's there, right? right. And so I, all of my life, it was like, I'm going to Spelman. I'm going to Spelman. This advisor told me, he said, I'm practicing reverse racism because I'm attending a historically black college. Mm-hmm. And he thought that I was one of the good ones, right? And mm. so, when I told when I told my dear mother about this these comments that he made, of course she had she served him up on a silver platter and gave him. I mean, he was you know all of mm-hmm. the fragility that came out of that. But I will tell you, even with having a stellar academic background that I thought that I had done so well. Mm-hmm. I get to Spelman. I take my freshman entrance exams in math and English, and I failed them miserably. And I had to take remedial reading and remedial math that I didn't get credit for my freshman year of college. Mm-hmm. And so that that like was a light bulb moment for me. Like I, I had I had never experienced failure. Mm-hmm. And so I was like in a state of shock and awe. And it made me from that moment forward say, I am going to do things that impact Kid, black kids, brown kids, poverty community kids that look just like me mm-hmm. so that when they leave high school, this is not their realization. They're really prepared for the real world. And it starts in the cradle. It yes. starts in preschool. Yes. Right. Yes. So that's the thing. How do we connect the dots so that we are managing to affect the way that we are educating? Because it is a system that we are all forced to rely on. Well, let me tell you something. I could talk to you like all I could talk to you like all day long. Yeah. You know, about this. And we could really like break this down, like, you know, 
so get so deep into this. Absolutely. Like so deep. And, you know, so you're going to have to come back again at some point because we because we have to go a little bit deeper into it. What yes. you said about that, I had I had a different experience with going to Howard. My experience with going to Howard was I was playing basketball. I always thought that I was going to play basketball in college. And by the time my senior came, year came around, I was actually tired of playing basketball. Yeah. And I couldn't imagine myself playing for four years for of basketball. I couldn't. And one of my mother's friends said, why don't you apply to Howard? So I sent it in with my SATs and I ended up applying and lo and behold, I got in. I wasn't really thinking about a black university along right. those lines for, you know, so I kind of like fell into it. So a lot yeah. of my experiences when I went there the first, you know, semester, I was like kind of taken aback and shocked by a lot of things. You know, it was like a good shock, a fun right, shock, right. you know, but it was a shock. It really was. It was different. And, you know, back then you had to be cool. So no matter right. what happened, it's like you took everything in stride. And that yeah. was like part of my journey. But, you know, what you say about the about the schools not preparing you and thinking that you were prepared. But in the right. reality, it was, you know, and the, the way that you handled it says a lot yeah. about you. Because a lot of people might have been humbled by that experience. They might have taken that and said, like, you know what, I'm not worthy or whatever. Or, you know, just what there's a whole lot of there's a whole lot of psychosis that I can go into with that. But what you said was that, damn, they didn't do me right. I'm gonna make sure that nobody else does. And I was reading something about someone else. Yes. Just yesterday about people who have been victims of violence at a young age and they either become victimizers themselves or they become helpful. It's either one of the two. There's none. So you obviously took the other path and everything. And for that, you, you deserve your, you deserve your employees. You deserve everything that you have and everything. And I know that someone like you, that doesn't mean anything. Right. Cause you just, you're just moving forward. This is who you are and everything. And I appreciate that. And I, and I do, and we need more people out. We need more people like that. Now the problem is we're going to get back into the problem now. Okay, because we've identified that and we've gone deep in. I don't think we have enough time to really unpack what it, the rest of what I'm going to pack, unpack, yeah. which is basically society and what we've been taught, what we expect to be like, what we expect as the norm and what we accept as the norm as black people and whether or not it's good for us. And something came to my mind. I had to write it down because near a, it was like the thing about near a screen, you know, mm. the, um, the, the man who taught Jack Daniels how to make whiskey. Right. And, you know, black people take that a couple of different ways. Another thing that they stole from us, you can't do anything without us. All the best things come from out of our culture. You can say a lot of different things about that. But he told him to make whiskey. But apparently Jack Daniels always kept it. He took care of his people. So it's like we don't know what that is at that time. Right. It's not really easy to be a quote unquote ally at, you know, in any point. It's not easy work. If you are an ally, and in a way, I guess right. he is because I see those people, they are on the board there. Right. They have their position there. So it's like, that's that's like respect. But, um, you know, this guy was talking about the nearest green and how it's a, a little bit expensive. I'm not a drinker and everything. And um, he said that even though he went into a bar and he saw this and he bought around for everyone, you know, even though he's more of a great person, I thought to myself... I'd probably pass on that too because I'm not a smoke, I'm not a drinker. And from where I started, you know, I used to drink a lot, you know, but I do understand that a lot of people think it's a social lubricant. Right. It's an acceptable thing. It's an acceptable way to pass your debt. 
every message that you had in the 70s or 80s, where you, do you come home? Oh, honey, you want me to fix you a drink? You know, and this is, but this is, so even to the point where he said that he bought around for everyone else, even though it's not something he's into, but he knows that that's a good thing. And it just like made me think about how we normalize things right. that are bad for us. Right. And we accept that and we make it okay. And that's exactly what we've done as a, as a culture. The truth is I don't have a desire to have that drink because to me, uh, it's just like, it's not my, it's not my thing. It's not my feeling, but people would actually take that and they cast dispersions on me just for not having that drink. You know, right. it's suspicious. Right. You know, why are you rejecting the training? It's like the person who doesn't drink the Henny, you know, you don't drink Henny. Then what's wrong with you? Right. You know what I'm saying? Don't you want to get lifted and everything? <laughs> and, you know, but this is what, but this is what it is. They think it's oddball behavior because it's so yeah. contrarian. So what you're saying that black people should be doing is contrary to all of the messages that are fed Absolutely. to us. Absolutely. How do we fix that? Oh, I think that more people are arriving at a moment of, I have to do something different. I think that when they saw, especially during this past year and a half, going on two years now, so many of us on the front lines holding down this country, mm. it was very reminiscent of the times of slavery when we held down and built this country, when during emancipation, we were forced to the outskirts of cities and towns and municipalities, and we built cities, and then they got jealous, and they burnt our cities down, and we built them up again, and they burnt our cities down, and they built up... The cycle continues. I think that we have gotten to a point where we are seeing ourselves, the things that we say inside our house and we've heard Big Mama and them talk about and Uncle Charlie when he even is a little bit inebriated, mm -hmm. tell the truth about how he was treated back in the day. I think that we are now being able to hold those stories, those Black lived experiences more dear and, and close to our heart and say that, you know what, we're going to move a little bit differently. Let's keep our dollars in our community. Let's put our children in homeschooling programs. Let's rely on each other. One of the things that came out of um, COVID early on was white communities. They were creating these educational pods to wait on and see if the school system would get their acts together. Mm -hmm. So I was like, oh, they got money to do that. We don't have the money and the resources to do that. So let's get a few parents together. And again, I go back to that virtual space that I tried to create and I just would bring in and infuse in. I don't care if you was at home. Every black parent across this country has an expertise in something. Mm -hmm. And so bringing people in everyday folks and reminding us of our genius, reminding of us our, of our resilience, because there is no people on the face of this earth other than folks who have melanin in their skin who are as resilient, right? Who has made it through and come on the other side of what it means to have survived. And so I say that. And then secondly, in, in fighting the, the systems, right? Because we rely on, I believe we rely on five systems. One is education because they force us to send our kids to some kind of school setting. Mm -hmm. We rely on employment because we have to figure out a way to be human capital in their system of capitalism. Mm -hmm. And that's a good and a bad thing, right? Because if you work for them, you know that you're being treated just like a slave. But if you work for yourself, you might not get access to the resources to really do well. Mm -hmm. The third 
thing is medical access. Ask Serena Williams, a millionaire who went to the hospital after giving birth to her child and her doctor not believing that she was in pain. In pain, yes. Because we, you know, black women are like, you got, you ain't got no pain. You, you got a high tolerance of pain. So just go home and take some Tylenol. And she was bleeding internally and could have bled. Could have died. Right? Yep. And so that's medical genocide, but we rely on their system because we don't have a black hospital. We also rely on the system of housing. Do we rent? Do we buy? Can we buy? Right? Mm -hmm. Because we know that redlining has been a thing. And Mm. then that last system that we rely on is the ability to have our votes heard when we go to the voting poll. Mm. And so regardless of who you are at any level, rich, poor, or in between, you rely on those five systems. And when the systems are rigged against you and COVID has exposed that, right? Mm-hmm. I think more of us are saying, we're going to set up some communities where we're going to keep our dollars in-house. We're going to take care of our kids. We're going to make sure that if somebody is in community that we know who doesn't have housing, we're going to bring them in. Think about the Jewish community. Think about the Asian American um, community. Think about the Latinx community. They do these things, but they do it for a matter of sustainability because they are told no once they come to this country as immigrants. We don't have that as a benefit. This country is mine, yours, our children's, our grandchildren's, just as much as it was the settlers who came here. You want to know why? Because we didn't ask to come here. That's exactly correct. And, you know, the thing is, I, you said another thing you said I picked up on, you know, we rely on their systems. But the problem is with getting us to realize that we're actually in a war and it has been that way for over 20 years now is that we also a lot of us actually have identify with that system and we identify we try to find it's it's such a thing that you try to find yourself within these systems so much that you forget that you are not exactly that you are something different we are something different and one of the things that i like to that i like to um discuss when it comes to fixing this thing and identifying is that is income insufficiency okay that's a huge, huge, huge part of problem. all of it. Part yeah. of all of it. Um, as a as a mortgage banker in 2006, who was actually working when the crash, before the crash, really became official, we all saw it coming. And up until the time that it actually happened, to the time when Obama became president, and he got to sign off on a bill, a um, stimulus bill that he didn't really have as much to do with as the previous regime did, and everything. Right. We have a generation of kids that grew up in economic instability. Yes. And it's not just black kids. It's white kids. It's Latino kids. It's all these kids. The reason why I mention that is because of the fact that when we are discussing these issues that are wrong with the system and the pushback that you get from the other side is, well, I didn't get any advantage. I don't have any advantage. What are you talking about with me? It's because... We are actually up in a, what we're actually in a thing, and it's very important, and I'm not empathizing, I'm not saying one way or the other, but it's very important to understand what the other position is before you can even attack it. So, or even go after it or, or try to make a change. And what that position says is that we didn't take any advantage. We're going up against a generation of people that are unlike any other generation that this country has ever spit out in that. There weren't the vacations. Um, your uncle and aunt 
doesn't necessarily have a lot of money. A lot of people that were in the middle class got pushed down to the lower classes. And I always say that, you know, I used to say it before it happened. I used to tell the white people that I went to school with, y'all would make terrible black people because you complain about things that are not really, they're just obstacles that we all have to get through and we've got to go against. But the problem is that when you're speaking a lot of these things, a lot of these people, they didn't see that. They didn't go through that prosperity that they would perceive. But what they did go through was still advantage. It just wasn't the advantage that they want, that they wanted. So they're mad at you for attempting to try to come up to a position that they no longer, a space that they no longer occupy. Absolutely. So it's important that we identify all of these things before we have these conversations and before we go out and we attack these things. And my, my thing is that I don't think that we're going to, there's going to be much of anything that's going to come from that end. It's right. never, if you're relying on them to do your, to do things for us, it's not going to happen. Right, right. Don't have nothing to do with it. Right. Has nothing to do with it. Cause if it was right, that study that we just mentioned about 50 years of preschool would be in every school in America, in inner city city school in America. You talk about, you want to complain about people shooting each other in inner city Chicago, but you want to turn down the funding for every after school program, preschool program, everything that actually mitigates and actually affects the problem. Sticking them in jail does not help them. It helps you. It helps your family, it helps the police officers, it helps the court system, helps the attorneys, it pays for all those things. Just like the Ferguson DOJ report showed that what we're doing is actually we're taking the money from these people and we're building buildings for ourselves. The system of racism still exists and it's not going to change unless we ourselves change it. Absolutely. And here's the thing. With every, it starts with one touch with the carceral system, and I call it the carceral system. I don't care what level of it it is. So if at the cradle, uh, there was a there was a couple I want to say in Chicago who the woman was trying to the couple where they were wanted to give birth at home. Um, yeah. They had some complications. They eventually did give birth at home. They brought called nine one one an ambulance brought them to the hospital. They requested to go to a specific hospital. The ambulance didn't take them to that hospital. Mm-hmm. The the hospital that they got to um, then wanted to give the baby shots. They declined. They signed the paperwork and said we declined. And not since you're not allowing us, you know what we want. Want, we want to be discharged. They left the hospital, went home. The hospital called the police on them. Mm. And that baby fresh out the womb being held by his father mm-hmm. was told, put the baby down or we're going to shoot you. That's that baby wow. touch with the carceral system. So when you say cradle to prison, mm-hmm. these are real stories. And so here's the thing that when we invest in and when we recognize that the systems one are against us, and we set up systems for ourselves. Like I, I trained to be a doula out of fun because I wanted to make sure that if there was someone who needed an opportunity to have an extra set of eyes and ears and advocacy while they go to the hospital to, to have a baby, that they had that readily available to them, right? That's a way that people in community, my grandmother was a doula. She just didn't have the, ty- the title of a doula, right? Mm-hmm. She, she was the, the, that lady around the community. Oh, baby, 
go on down there and see Miss Willie. She'll tell you what to do if you got this kind of pain, right? Mm-hmm. And so we have those people in our communities. What we need to now do is make sure that we are taking advantage of the resources that we have within our community. When we know that those carceral, those touches with the carceral system happen, we know that those are the things that we that follow us for life. So I don't care if it's a person who is in kindergarten and had, you know, handcuffs put on them because they were acting a certain kind of way. I don't care if you were in the fifth grade and you got a, into a fight with someone at school and it was a no tolerance policy and they suspended you. These things follow our children and follow the legacy that our, our legacy then begins to be, we are criminals rather than we are people trying to survive and thrive right. in this country. Well, when and they, that opportunity is taken away from us. Well, when they started the no tolerance policies, it started in the high school and they mm-hmm. broke it down and they brought it down slowly, but slowly, slowly down until you get to the elementary schools. And now it's like, you know, in preschools and we got kids that are in first grade getting arrested for behaviors that are normal behaviors for kids. Absolutely. These are normal behaviors. Kids act out, you know, right. at times. This is what happens. If you're going to criminalize that and you're going to use that as proof and you're going to sit there and you're going to repeat it, you're going to vote for it, you're going to support people who support it, then guess what? If your parents, if you didn't own slaves or you didn't do X, Y, or Z, guess what? You're still supporting that shit. You're racist. And on that note, you know what? This time flew. Ms. Sonia Lewis. It did. Well, let me just end with this. This last comment is that I am also a former member of former lead member of Black Lives Matter Sacramento in my local chapter. And so one thing that I am an, an advocate of is I love your when group. You, I love but yes. let me just stop. I love your group because, yeah, I guess you you I, I don't know what type of algorithms you're running, but you must have noticed me like smacking people online. And you're the only Black Lives group that like sent me an, an invitation to like watch and follow you. So it's like, you know, and the information that comes from that group, I have to tell you the truth. I hate the name black. I hate the term black lives matter. Cause I always say that anytime I have to tell somebody my life matters, then I'm already like kind of like bowing down to them, but I understand the movement Absolutely. and I understand the sentiment behind it and everything. And I support yeah. the movement and I support what's going on a hundred percent. I just hate the name. And everything, but I love yeah, your group absolutely. specifically, Sacramento. Thank y'all you. get a. I didn't even know that, you know, but y'all get a definite round of applause, you know, because y'all are in there doing that work. We no wonder work. why y'all doing that work. So go ahead. <laughs> so I was gonna say my tenure with Sa- with Sacramento Black Lives Matter. We were able to pass state legislation. We were able to force our police department not only to wear body cams, but to release body cam footage anytime law enforcement officers were involved in a shooting or a violent interaction, right? We have been able to make a public record that when officers try to hop from one agency to another, that their record follows them. Like all of these things are because mm. we got into the ear of our elected officials, right? And mm. so you mentioned earlier in our conversation about policy, the importance of that. So when 
when I show up at city council meetings, at board of supervisor meetings, at school board meetings, they know when I'm coming that I'm coming with facts. And not only am I coming with facts, I'm coming to challenge you. And I have a platform of people behind me who are either one of three things. They are either allies. And I really and truly, when I say that when black people win, all people win, but I need if you are going to be an ally that you recognize that ally shit in the traditional sense of allyness, mm-hmm. throwing dollars at, you know, a cause, putting up a few hashtags, taking a few pictures, doing a little bit of community service. That's dead. No bueno. That's not enough. No bueno. I need for you to, to be a comrade. I need for you to be an accomplice. I need you to be an abolitionist because that's only and truly when we are able to change and shift the pendulum from when this thing gets changed. Secondly, I want to say, you know, I would definitely love to come back and chat with you some more. I have a book that's coming out in regards to an experience. My seven-year-old self, seven-year-old Sonia refused to say the Pledge of Allegiance. Seven-year-old Sonia got into a lot of trouble behind that. But seven-year-old Sonia is the most courageous little badass girl that I know. Mm. And I still lean on her to make sure that I'm standing in that courage that my ancestors like Harriet Tubman, like Fannie Lou Hamer have embedded in me. And so I say all of these things in a roundabout fashion because I can't look my children in the face and say, mommy loves and protects you. And if anything happens to you, I'm going to take that bullet. I can't say that to them and make them believe that if I'm not showing up in spaces where they can see the change happening and not say anything. And so for that, I thank you for having this platform. Anytime you need, you know, we got a conversation to be had. Let me tell you something, Sister Sonia Lewis, you are indicative of the many, many wonderful black sisters that we have across this country that are in there hard doing the work, raising our families, being our guidelines, being our conscience and our compass. And I thank you. And I especially thank you for being the mother of all those children, opening up your heart, opening up your mind and your, and your soul to that and everything. And like I said, I don't do as much research on these things. I like you to surprise me. So that way, yeah. if, if it goes wrong, I might have to, I might have to smack some of my guests in the future, you know, smack them down or something. I didn't have a problem with this. I was just like, yeah. I just wanted to sit back and listen to you talk for an hour. I just had well, to interject. I, I had to apologize for even interjecting because I just had to let, let people know that there's more than one person on this show right now because you can talk all day. You got it. You know, much respect and we love you. You know, so I'm going to give you a round of applause. What's the name of your organization again? It is Ascribe Educational Consulting. That's A-S-C-R-I-B-E success.com. I also have a nonprofit called Edify Humanity, and we are all about every day lifting what this youth empowerment looks like. And so you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and the Twitters at Ascribe Success. And with that, I'm going to say thank you, Born in Trouble listeners. You know, Sister Sony Lewis, you were a great guest, a great guest. And I can't wait to have you back again. I'm thinking about doing a panel. I've got some pretty fantastic um, people like, you know, ladies that I know, and especially one I would I would love for you to miss, meet Miss Gina Watkins, who I'm going to have on the show at another point. She's like a very, um, she's an older woman, but she's a powerhouse. And I love yeah. her. And I know that she would love you. And I'd just like to thank you for once again. It's like, I can't say enough. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Born in Trouble, 22nd episode. Peace.